Did you know the best way to keep up with the National Observer is by subscribing? I'm Zara Kazema, and I want to tell you about a great deal for our new subscribers. You get unlimited access to everything we have to offer for basically a fancy cup of coffee a month. Go to nationalobserver.com slash subscribe. You can cancel at any point without charge, but we have a feeling you'll want to stick around. In the spring of 2023, watchers on both sides of Vancouver Island were monitoring the juvenile salmon as they made their way to the open Pacific. In Clockwork Sound, biologist Mac Bartlett is out on the water daily, and the sea lice are bad again. Mac runs the Cedar Coast Field Station in Tofino. When we started to get a spike in temperature in, I believe it was late May, early June, we were seeing spikes and sea lice abundance, uh, abundance as well. And we actually saw at our liciest uh, sea lice location um, up to about five lice per fish average. And so that's closer to what we were seeing in 2019 and 2020. So the, the number this year is actually higher than it's been in the last three years. But I've seen the sea lice reports coming from Sir Mac, who operates the farms, and they show a different picture. Mac has seen them too. It's interesting too because on farm they've still continued to report very low sea lice abundance. Um, I think in part that's because they've been doing lots of hydrolysing, so they've been doing um, basically back-to-back treatments on the farms. Hydroslicing is a delicer treatment. It involves sucking the fish out of the farm into a barge and then pressure washing them to remove sea lice. Dan Lewis of Clackwick Action says those back-to-back treatments can produce a die-off in the farms. It just can't take that much handling. It's, it, it causes, um, it washes off the slime coating on the fish. We see that on a regular basis. When they're hydrolysing, you get near that hydrolyzer, and there's just a, a slick of, of um, slime from the fish and scales. And those scales and that slime are there to protect those fish from disease. So it's pretty foreseeable that the fish will get sick. Max says sometimes the farms harvest before the fish can get too sick. And they don't have to report sea lice numbers during those harvest periods as well. Fish stressed by pressure washing, harvested early, and sold to a grocery store near you. I'm Sandra Bartlett, and from the National Observer, This is The Salmon People, Episode 13, Shock and Awe Among First Nations. On the other side of Vancouver Island, a different story is beginning to take shape. In the Broughton Archipelago and the Discovery Islands, about 45 fish farms have been closed. Most of the farms in the Discovery Islands have been empty for the past three years. The rest closed this summer. Yeah, uh, pretty incredible. It's a, it's a huge shift that I wasn't expecting. For the past 18 years, Jody Erickson and Farland Campbell's spring job has been to go out on the waters near the fish farms in the Broughton Archipelago and the Discovery Islands to catch and monitor juvenile wild salmon. We met Jody and Farland last season when they were working for Alex Morton, catching smolts for her research. This is Jody. Every spring, 
since 2005, we've been sampling for salmon smolts for Alex and for other other people. We go out, depending what the project is, we go out in the spring, starting sometimes in March or April through to September some years. How many people do what you do every year? Go out and look at the sea lice. There is some more now. When we started, there was very few. Alex was the first, and then it was a, an old family friend of ours um, who's now passed away, but he was a commercial fisherman and wrote to Alex and said, hey, you're doing it in the Broughton. How about we have lots of farms here? How about we do it here? And so that was the first. You get into an area, you can tell, uh-oh, this is a bad area. Oh, instantly, yeah. So like when there is lots of sea lice, the fish also look ragged. Like the fish, the sea lice agitate the slime and the scales and they'll be kind of thinner and more like, they kind of look a little bit fuzzy. But these days, they're not seeing any of that in the fish in the Discovery Islands. In the last three years in the Discovery Islands have been clean, just amazingly lice-free. It's just so stunning. There's a reason the immediacy of the change shocked them. Like we've done quite a bit of stuff with old growth forests. It's like, okay, let's put aside this forest and in 100 years or 200 years, it'll be an old growth tree again. But like with salmon, it was... The farms left, and six months later, it was amazing. Instant reward. There's something else that surprised them. The wild salmon's behavior has changed, or possibly been restored. Every year, they come out in March, and by beginning in July, it's pretty much gone. Like, if somebody wanted to come out and, and look at salmon smolts, I couldn't find them salmon smolts. And one of the biggest differences we've seen is the local pink and chum are staying around much longer than they ever did. We always figured they just went north because the conventional logic is pink and chum come out of the river and they head north and they go out to the open ocean. But starting the year they removed the fish farms, they didn't disappear. They were here right into September, October. And not just a few, like millions, literally millions of them all over in the Discovery Islands. And then again last year. We were out just a few days ago trying to film them jumping just because they're just still jumping. If you turn the engine off, it's just the sound of fish going blip, 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 blip. They make this cute little uh, blipping as they make a little splash of water. What does that tell you? It never happened. With with fish farms, you never had salmon in July. Considering it's three years in a row, I think they must have been dying and only a handful of them were making it north. I don't really see any other reasonable explanation after seeing three years in a row of salmon hanging out for so long when before they'd always disappear. I I think they're probably using this area more like a lake, like a nursery area, than we previously thought. Jody's explaining that for years, researchers thought the fish moved quickly past the fish farms out to the ocean. But in fact, it may be they were dying, not leaving. And now that the farms and sea lice are gone, their true behavior is being seen, hanging around in the waters for a while, climatizing before heading north to the open ocean. Jody and Farlan also sample smolts north of the Discovery Islands around Port Hardy. There are still fish farms in that area. And it was a different sea lice story there. Fish up there are very licey. You're getting up to 45 lice per fish. And it's like, oh, yeah, this is what lysy fish look like. Like, they're so... <laughs> so 45 sea lice in 2023 is better, I guess, than 70 sea lice per fish they were seeing in 2005. But 45, that's still a lot. 
you can have 45 pretty tiny lice. In general, you won't see 45 adult lice on a fish because it just kills the fish before it gets there. So, so there's still a lot of farms around Port Hardy. They have, yeah, there's quite a lot around Port Hardy and they have a big processing plant there. The fish that you're seeing them, they're healthy and kind of hanging around a little bit. Don't they eventually have to go by Port Hardy? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so the fish move through the Discovery Islands without being attacked by sea lice. But then they have to go by the farms in Port Hardy, which are filled with sea lice. But Jody says by the time they go past those farms, the fish are much bigger and they'll go through faster. So the sea lice aren't as big a risk. I think one of the main lessons to be learned from the Discovery Islands is you have to remove all the farms before the lice or the salmon lice disappears. If you leave even one or two farms, the impact is, is much bigger than I think we quite realized. Yeah, I, th- I think the what we've seen is just it's so clearly obvious that the farms are causing the lice. And when you move the, remove the farms, there's no lice. It's, there's just no wishy-washy-ness about it when you actually are there. For Alex Morton, after more than 20 years of counting sea lice, it's satisfying to see improvement for the third year in a row. When you look at this year after year after year, they take the farms out, the lice go down, they put the farms back, the lice come back. There's more lice on juvenile wild salmon outside farms that have older farm salmon, where there's more lice. When the drug slice was working to reduce the lice on the farm salmon, the number of lice on the juvenile wild salmon went down. When the, when the lice became drug resistant and the farmers couldn't control them anymore, lice went back up on the wild fish. So when you have a database that goes back to 2005 for the Discovery Islands, 2001 for the Broughton Archipelago, and you see these consistent trends, the more farm salmon, the more lice on wild salmon. It's, it's very clear. Alex took the numbers she and Jody and Farland have collected for the past three years and published a study. The paper is peer-reviewed and was written with Rick Rutledge of Simon Fraser University. It found that sea lice on pink and chum salmon dropped 96% since 2020 when seven fish farms were removed. But what's good news to some is a call to arms for others. As the countdown to the future of the fish farms and the wild salmon keeps ticking, industry has found a new way to fight the closures. It involves First Nations reconciliation, territorial rights, and money. Lots of it. Minister Joyce Murray's decision on what will happen with the remaining 50-plus fish farms in B.C. would be announced by the end of June. In the lead-up to that, industry has been working hard to get agreements with First Nations to keep farms in the water. It may be seen as a loophole, get First Nations on board, and the federal government won't order the farms to close. And in return, the First Nations get some badly needed cash. In the past, the cash was not very much. Last season, Chief Darren Blaney of the Mulca First Nations told us about a 2017 contract he called insulting. The chief before me had um, negotiated an agreement with them, and it was a terrible agreement. It was like uh, 35000 a year. Maui, it was called Marine Harvest at the time, was paying the First Nation 35000 a year 
to operate farms in their territory. And Hamolka Nation had to report to Marine Harvest how the money was being spent. Darren discovered the contract had not been approved through a band council resolution, so it was not valid, and he was able to cancel it. When I went out to the fish farms in Skookum John's boat, the Sweet Marie, we passed by the village of Ahauset. That's where Skookum's from. It's an hour's ride from Tofino on the west coast of Vancouver Island. Well, there's no grocery stores on the island, but everybody goes to Tofino or to the general store and shop. Yeah, it's quite expensive. What I like to say is um, you have to be a millionaire to live around here. Skookum would like to see his nation's agreement with Cermak cancelled. The company operates 14 farms in a house at First Nation territory. Like in most of BC, the fish farms have been in place for 30 years. Of course, for most of those 30 years, a house that had to accept what they were offered because they didn't have the power to make Cermak leave. Skookum says the latest agreement was signed in 2022. There have been rumors of big money, almost so big to be unbelievable. It was uh, 42 million for five years. That's a five-year agreement to allow Cermak to operate 14 farms in Clackwood Sound, an additional two million as a signing bonus. So where did you get the figure of 42 million? From the office of well, the chief officer. Skookum won't say more than that about who gave him the details of the agreement. I tried to talk to the hereditary chiefs to confirm what he told me, but there was no response to my emails. Skookum says the hereditary chiefs went on a shopping spree after the agreement. They bought a whale-watching business and a tourist resort. That would be a good way to create jobs that don't depend on the fish farms. The catch, of course, is the fish farms remain for five years of the contract, or until 2025 if the fisheries minister orders them closed. Skookum believes the money should have been spent in Hauset. One of the elders here the shell of a home. One plug-in that's working for the past three years. You just told me the other day. And they finally come in and said, well, put a new roof on for you. They put a new roof on, we'll renovate your house. Nothing's happened. You know, still no washroom, no running water, stuff like that. Those are the things I want exposed. Dan Lewis of Clackwork Action has also heard the $42 million rumor. But of course, a rumor, even one repeated by several people, is still a rumor. I asked Cermak for an interview to confirm the numbers. Cermak sent an email refusing the interview and saying their agreements with First Nations are confidential. The talk of big money is the same on the other side of the island. Everyone is chattering about Cermak, Maui and Grieg making lavish offers to get First Nations to sign new agreements. Bob Chamberlain is with the First Nations Leadership Council. Its members consist of the BC Assembly of First Nations, the Union of BC Indian Chiefs, and the First Nations Summit. These groups represent territories that want fish farms to leave BC. He says those paltry agreements were common until about a year ago. You know, the year before, like let's just say last year, a nation got $12 million for a handshake. Where was that? money the year before that when they only gave 50000 To me, that doesn't show a good corporate uh, friendship or respect. It's like, yeah, well, we'll give you an appropriate amount only when we have to. But until then, here's a shiny nickel and go entertain yourself. 
Now it seems there are a lot more shiny nickels for any First Nation that will agree to have fish farms in their territory. From what I understand, they sweetened the deal with some of the First Nations in the Discovery Islands. And now that's gone up to, in the, I think it was like 10 or $12 million. Now, I'm not sure if that's for a number of years or if it's 10 or $12 million a year, but it's that kind of money that definitely gets people to pay attention in a different way. Alex Morton talks to First Nation leaders all the time, and here's the big numbers. So if you are approached by somebody and they're going to give you millions of dollars, these First Nation leaderships are getting put in a very difficult situation. But what they want is the money, not the industry. There are other ways that industry and some First Nations have been getting cozy, and it's causing friction between and within communities. A particular point of tension? A lawsuit. A strikingly familiar one with a twist. On March 20, 2023, Deja Vu, Maui, Cermak, and Grieg filed a petition to the federal court to have Minister Murray's decision to remove 15 farms from the Discovery Islands set aside. It was the second time the Big Three had moved to overturn a minister's decision in the past two years. They even used pretty much the same arguments as the first time. The minister's decision was unreasonable, procedurally unfair, because they said she didn't consult with them or warn them before making her decision. But Minister Murray had spent a year consulting industry and First Nations and others about transitioning the fish farms out of the water. There are minutes of meetings to prove it. Maui, Cermak, and Greek are well aware that the minister has a mandate from the prime minister to close the farms. But this time they tried a new tactic. In a statement before filing the court application, Diane Morrison the managing director of Maui Canada West, invoked Indigenous rights. We are very disappointed that Minister Murray has decided not to issue any salmon aquaculture licenses in the Lakwitak territory. This decision, along with previous decisions, continues to raise serious questions about Canada's commitment to First Nations reconciliation, its food producers, and the health of coastal communities. The reference to First Nations reconciliation was surprising. While the Norwegian fish farm companies had been neck deep in territorial waters for decades, they'd never waded into the political territory of Indigenous rights before. And when people read the court application, there was a shock. It was clear why Maui had talked about reconciliation. Two First Nations, Wewakum of Campbell River and Wewakai of Cape Mudge on Quadra Island, joined the industry lawsuit. They said they joined because Minister Murray wasn't respecting their rights to make the decision on fish farms in their territories. Chief Chris Roberts of the Wewakum talked about this at a news conference after the Discovery Islands decision was announced. The First Nations Finfish Stewardship Coalition, that's right, Finfish and Stewardship, those two things can go together. It is through our rights and title that we must have a say on how, if, and what kind of salmon farming can and should take place in our territories, in our backyards, where we have lived for millennia. The First Nations for Finfish Stewardship Coalition is made up of 17 nations that have fish farms in their territories and want them to stay. They say the minister should take those fish farms out of the Discovery Islands decision 
and the nations should control the ocean in their territory. Like the Broughton Archipelago, where First Nations ordered Maui and Surmac to close farms, the Discovery Islands are a key wild salmon highway to the ocean. The lawsuit created a divide among First Nations. Bob Chamberlain believes the First Nations Finfish Stewardship Coalition is oversimplifying and ignoring key aspects of Indigenous people's life and culture, and there can be no reconciliation without wild salmon. The messaging I've been given out to people in the media and, and government is removing fish farms is an opportunity for food security and reconciliation across the province. And so to me, I'm watching industry definitely draw lines in the sand and, and not making friends with First Nations, but making friends only with First Nations who have made the choice to accept an economic benefit in place of fulsome Aboriginal rights. Some community members think it's an odd alliance for the First Nations to be working with Norwegian companies. The community can't believe what's going on. <laughs> It's, it's something that you've never heard of before. Like it's out of order. This is Barbara O'Coy. I'm an elder from the Cape Mudge Reserve, which is the Wewakai Band, and I just turned 70 this year. Barbara says people in her community have wanted the fish farms gone for a long time, and they were happy with the minister's February decision. We have had no salmon here for many years and some years there was no food for the people. We did protests on the water up there so they knew we were there and um, they just kept telling us, oh your people will have no jobs. Like what people? There's nobody on the farms. They're all automatically fed. There's nobody sitting on the farms. But then the community heard about the lawsuit and that their nation had been signed up as co-complainants horrified. They can't believe what Ronnie's doing. Chief Ronnie Chikite told the community about the lawsuit in a letter attached to the court document. He went over to Norway with the fish farm people and he came back. He put this lawsuit in and he never asked the people. He put this lawsuit in and then he sends this thing out in our newsletter what he did. The chief said in the lawsuit his priority is the protection of wild salmon. But the main issue is Indigenous control. Barbara McCoy doesn't buy it. I haven't been able to ask Chief Ronnie Chikite about the lawsuit and if there was a trip to Norway because he has not responded to my emails. But I have seen documents filed as part of the lawsuit. In particular, several letters Ronnie Chikite of the Wewakai and Chris Roberts of the Wewakam wrote to Fisheries Minister Joyce Murray in November of 2022 two nearly identical letters about farms operated by Grieg. This is the last paragraph from Ronnie's letter. Please accept this letter as confirmation that Wewakam supports and consents to the issuance of a renewed marine finfish agriculture license for Grieg to operate around Barnes Bay. Two weeks later, Ronnie sent another letter on behalf of both First Nations, repeating their support for the fish farms but adding that these two nations plan to take over control of land belonging to sister nations. Both Wewakai and Wewakam nations are in Stage 5 of the B.C. treaty process 
where our negotiations are increasingly focusing, among other things, on exercising our jurisdiction over particular areas of interest, which encompass the following salmon sites. The very next day, they wrote another letter to the minister. This one described a plan for controlling seven fish farm sites and working with Grieg, Cermak, and Maui to control interactions between farmed and wild salmon. Crucially, the plan had already been put into action. Now, Cermak was requesting that their tenures for two of the farms be turned over to the two nations, and they would compensate them for the use of the facilities. That argument for control of the whole territory is included in the lawsuit. That has forced Chief Darren Blaney of the Hamolka First Nation to ask for standing in the court case. It's his territory that's under threat. We, we got in there because um, of their claim of exclusivity. We couldn't just leave that statement in the court. Otherwise, we're weakening ourselves in our rights in our territory. Darren has been forced to gather evidence of Homoko's existence in the territory for thousands of years. He never thought he'd be in court against a sister nation defending Homoko's history. It's, it's, it's definitely our history. It's not Wewakai or Wewakum's history because they've only been around since anywhere from 1875 to earlier. So there's um, it's a better chance that it's ours than theirs. Darren says Wewakai and Wewakum have started a fight. They've been really, really aggressive. They came after our radio station and told our radio station we couldn't be telling the stories, our stories around the area. And then even our whale watching, they said we couldn't be telling our stories. Up. And it's like, they don't own it. <laughs> Were they? That's what I want to know. They're off the mark somehow. Yeah. Chiefs Roberts and Jakite have also been lobbying hard to control the territory and control the fish farms. When January 30th, 2023 came and went, without an announcement on the Discovery Island farms, Chief Roberts and Jakite wrote an angry letter to the minister about the delay. Here are some excerpts. The complete lack of communication, combined with the delay in their decision, is disrespectful. Your lack of respect for our nation's sovereignty, self-determination, and needs of our community is not acceptable. By now, you should be well aware of the importance of this timely decision to our nations and our plans for where agriculture fits within our plans. And, of course, the Wewakum and the Wewakai communities knew nothing about these letters. On Quadra Island, Barbara McCoy has been trying to get answers about how these decisions were made. As an elder in the community, Barbara's opinion carries weight. She's using that to call for the lawsuit to be cancelled. I'd like to inform you I have 102 signatures here. We do not support fish farms. We are not in favor of any fish farms, and we don't want them, nor need them. When Barbara says they don't need them, she means Wewakai already has thriving businesses. This is from a YouTube video posted by the band on its website. 
The Wiwake Seafood Corporation is an aquaculture venture where we're growing scallops. We have existing businesses, a Shell gas station. The band also owns the, the Quinson Crossing Liquor Store, as well as a partnership with the Lee's Famous Chicken and Ribs. That's just some of the band's businesses. And it's the same with the Wiwakum in Campbell River. A shopping mall, a large marina, an RV park, forestry licenses, an art gallery, and a gift shop are just a few of their businesses. Finally, Barbara forced Ronnie Chikite to hold a community meeting in late June of 2023. It's a warm and sunny morning in Campbell River. More than 40 members of the Wiwakai are gathered in Quincy Hall, where all community and band council meetings are held. Everyone knows each other. Most people are related. But the room is tense. That was started off not very good. The chief asked three times if anybody would do the opening prayer, and nobody would. Every meeting they do that. Not this time, and he asked like three times. People were too angry with the chief, and so the meeting had to start without the prayer. The chief wasn't alone at the front of the room either. The band's lawyer was also there. He's supposed to do the final stages in our treaty process. And he lives in Vancouver, so it must have cost a lot of money to bring him up here. Ronnie Chikite and the lawyer talked about the treaty process for more than an hour. It was really boring, like, but that took a long time to talk about that when we were trying to get busy with what we wanted to talk about. And some people that were sitting with me, they left. And when finally they got to the lawsuit, everyone had the same question. We all wanted to know if he was trying to open up the farms again. And he kept saying, like, no. Barbara managed to get an admission that there had been no band council resolution. For a brief moment, this gave Barbara hope. Remember, without a band council resolution, no decision is valid. We tried to ask for the minutes and ask for the minutes, and they kept saying, well, you've got to learn to trust us. After all the episodes, I don't think anybody wants to trust them. The chief refused to provide the minutes of the meeting. Barbara says Ronnie's insistence that the lawsuit is just about Indigenous rights and not about keeping the fish farms didn't convince anyone at the meeting. Ronnie said he wasn't for the fish farms. He wanted the rights for the water. His, his um, legal case not with the fish farms, but to get control of the water. But he didn't say why he wanted control of the water. In a letter to Minister Murray on February 9th, it sure sounds like Ronnie Jakite wants fish farms. We have made you and your staff very aware that a timely decision is needed prior to February 20th to support the stocking of one site at Wiwakai and Wiwakum Core Territory and, as we understand, one site in Klahus First Nations Territory. As she read through the court documents, Barbara saw that another First Nation seemed to have agreed to have fish farms. So Barbara McCoy from Quadra Island told her friend Michelle Robinson on nearby Cortez Island about the agreement in her territory signed by the acting chief, Stephen Brown. The Clahoos First Nations have been against fish farms for decades. 
and so Michelle wanted to know how there could be an agreement with CERMAC. But the exchanges she had with the acting chief didn't make sense. Because we're not going to be, um, we're not going to be fish farmers. Um, well, you're kind of opening a door and, and saying, well, we're with CERMAC, right? That's, that's what it says. We're with CERMAC. In fact, Interim Chief Stephen Brown had also written a letter to the fisheries minister, Joyce Murray, in April of 2022. He told the minister he had made an agreement with CERMAC to transfer fish to the Raza Island farm and grow them to harvest size and then decommission the farm by the following December. And could the minister give CERMAC a transfer permit? That means Interim Chief Brown had signed an agreement with CERMAC sometime in 2022 and his community only found out a year or more later by accident. Michelle made it clear to the chief and council that that was wrong. You know, my last words to to them was, you guys need to reset that. You need to take it back, and you need to to give them their money back, and you need to stop that. And they just nod their head, and off they went. Stephen Brown had been a band counselor, but changes to the band's election rules during COVID allowed him to be installed without an election. With COVID restrictions ended, the community had been asking for an election for 18 months. Discovering their agreement with CERMAC pushed some community members to their limits. A dozen elders occupied the band office and locked out the staff at the end of June. Hello? Hello, is this uh, Jesse? I called Clahousa elder Jesse Lowe to ask her about it. She said the occupation was a way to get the counselors and the acting chief who don't live in the community, to show up and talk to them. And when that blockade went up, then we started getting information as to what Stephen Brown has been doing, and, and then that's how we got to know about the speech while that was in our territory. We didn't know nothing about it. Jesse says the elders were outraged that such a major decision had been made by an interim chief without a community meeting. They demanded the agreement be cancelled and the $50,000 payment from CERMAC be returned. And it didn't go very well. You know, it just went round and round and round and more getting the answers. Not only did they not get the chief to agree to cancel the agreement, but they lost Michelle. The person that helped us elders, which is Michelle, she got fired for helping the elders for this blockade. Michelle was the social development manager with the band who made sure people got social assistance, health care, home care. After the community meeting, which ended the blockade, Chief Brown told her she was fired. No reason given. The fish farm on Raza Island has political reverberations beyond Clahoos territory. It will have an impact on the waters and the territory of Clahoos sister nations all of whom are against fish farms. Without input from sister nations is disrespectful and offensive in Indigenous politics. That should have come to all of membership. They should have come and schooled the people and given them the option, which they did not. I think it's, it's, it's horrendous. The elders are writing letters to CERMAC and the fisheries minister asking for the agreement to be cancelled and for the wishes of the elders and the community to be respected. These efforts by industry to keep farming fish in the ocean 
making agreements with First Nations without community support and going to the federal court to have the minister's decision set aside has angered a lot of people. Bob Chamberlain says it's unacceptable for fish farm companies to be wading into First Nations affairs, especially when they start deciding whose title counts and whose doesn't. The part that I find troublesome and kind of, you know, tongue-in-cheek laughable is industry stating that this First Nation here is the got the core territory. This First Nation here is the appropriate title holder to make this decision. It's so troubling. And to wrap themselves in a measure of dialogue on Aboriginal title is completely inappropriate for any corporate citizen. There's another lawsuit that's a little jaw-dropping. Maui has gone after both fisheries ministers personally. The Norwegian company filed a civil lawsuit against former minister Bernadette Jordan, who made the first Discovery Islands decision in 2020, and her replacement, Joyce Murray, who upheld her decision. Here are the accusations in the lawsuit. This is a claim against the Crown for malfeasance in public office, negligence, negligent misinformation, and expropriation stemming from unlawful conduct and willful breaches of natural justice of the fisheries ministers and their clear disregard for two rulings of the Federal Court of Canada. The Department of Fisheries and Oceans 41-page response leaned heavily on the 2012 Cohen Inquiry report. That report set out the rules and a timeline for keeping or closing fish farms. That was covered in Episodes 4 and 5 last season. DFO sliced through Maui's arguments of entitlement, like it had always had a license, so it of course assumed the license would always be renewed, and denying the license was unfair and unexpected. DFO reminded Maui that it did not have a legal right to have their license renewed, and did not have property rights in the waters where its fish farms were located. And the argument that Maui was caught off guard by the decision in 2020 and the second decision in 2023, DFO said the company knew about the Cohen report and knew in 2020 that the minister was contemplating whether or not to stop issuing licenses. Maui did not take that into account when planning its production cycles, but it should have. Any financial loss suffered by Maui was caused by that lack of planning. The minister based her decision on current concerns raised by the public regarding the interaction of aquaculture facilities and wild salmon in the Discovery Islands, new research and findings, and the continued decline of wild B.C. salmon. DFO reminded Maui that in the absence of a certainty of risk to the wild salmon, the minister was required to land on the side of caution. And that's what she did. I now call this meeting to order. Welcome to meeting In early March of 2023, after a year of hearing from 57 witnesses, scientists, academics, First Nations, fishers, DFO scientists and managers and interested citizens, the Standing Committee on Fisheries and Oceans released a report to Parliament. The aim of the committee was to evaluate how DFO used science to make its decisions and provide advice to the minister. The aim was also to evaluate whether that advice included solid and complete science. The fish farm industry has long complained 
that Ministers Jordan and Murray ignored science advice from their own staff in making decisions on fish farms. After reading the report, it's not hard to see why the minister might not rely only on that advice. The report was called Science at the Department of Fisheries and Oceans. It was made public just a month after Minister Murray ordered the closure of those 15 farms. I did look into what other research papers through UBC, through Simon Fraser, UVic, and even a university in, in Washington. And I discovered that there was a number of research papers that have shown that these um, parasites and pathogens do create disease conditions in the fish. That conflict in conclusions between outside research and DFO's science required the minister to err on the side of caution, invoking the precautionary principle and shutting down the farms. This parliamentary committee has members from the NDP, the Conservatives, the Liberals, and the Bloc Québécois, and their report was a scathing indictment of DFO science. Witness after witness made it very clear that DFO has some major problems, in particular its science arm, the Canadian Science Advisory Secretariat. The Secretariat manages the review of DFO science and the advice that comes out of the department. Independent scientists pointed out to the committee DFO's flaws. Uh, perhaps Mr. Mordecai first. Normally in science, reviewers who have a conflict of interest are often excluded, especially if the conflict is financial. Would you ask a tobacco company to review the science risks concerning lung cancer? We'll now go to Mr. Bateman. And really the issue that we were discussing is DFO's manipulation of the science advice. We'll now go to Mr. Probos. DFO appears to obfuscate and cherry-pick science and misdirect Canadians and news media away from inconvenient science and precautionary action. Thank you. We'll now go to Ms. Morton. I don't understand why we have this big, aggressive, powerful aquaculture management division in DFO and no, nothing to counterbalance it with the wild salmon. I, I've looked for the person in charge of wild salmon in, in DFO, and there is nobody, which is astonishing. The final report had 48 recommendations to correct these weaknesses. The committee was particularly critical of the 10 risk assessments, the ones done to satisfy the Cohen Commission recommendation that fish farms had to close if it couldn't be proven there was a minimal risk to the wild salmon. DFO proudly released the first nine assessments in 2020 and the final one on sea lice in January 2023, concluding minimal risk to wild salmon from the fish farms. The Parliamentary Committee had serious doubts about those assessments. It asked for an independent review of all 10, including the terms of reference and, quote, the suppression of evidence. For biologist Alexander Morton, those three little words, suppression of evidence, were a moment of triumph. Alex had been pointing that out for years. In return, she'd been attacked by government scientists. Yes, absolutely. There was vindication. And I loved Ken Hardy's response to the media saying that the DFO science for the Discovery Islands did not pass the sniff test. Ken Hardy was a liberal member of the committee. And then he said, he who pays the piper picks the tune. Oh, my word. Yes, you nailed it, Mr. Hardy. 
Sean Godwin is a marine ecologist with the Pacific Salmon Foundation. He studies the impacts of fish farms on wild salmon and has published extensively. The parliamentary report supported what he's seen with DFO Science. I thought that the report was generally pretty accurate. It was pretty scathing, as it should be, of DFO Science advice and the lack of transparency, the lack of evidence basis to it, uh, the lack of independent review, the lack of impartiality, and how you know things need to change to for Canada to be able to catch up with its peers in terms of fishery science advice. DFO has been repeatedly caught suppressing evidence, as well as preventing its own scientists from publicly commenting on their science, um, the muzzling essentially among other pretty egregious acts of uh, scientific integrity within an organization like that. The report also pulled no punches in calling for radical change in the department. It said it was time to put in place a recommendation made by Mr. Justice Cohen in his report back in 2012. In my respectful view, when DFO has simultaneous mandates to conserve wild stocks and promote the salmon farming industry, there are circumstances in which it may find itself in a conflict of interest because of divided loyalties. The parliamentary report went a step further than Mr. Justice Cohen. He only suggested a conflict. The committee made it clear DFO has stepped over the line and favors the interest of the salmon farm industry over the health of wild stocks. And to correct that, it recommended the creation of a separate wild salmon position independent from the aquaculture division. In other words, keep these two divisions far away from each other, which of course is what Alex Morton and many others have been calling for. The government has not said when it will respond to the report and if and when it will start putting the recommendations in place. In the meantime, another deadline was looming. Minister Joyce Murray's mandate from the Prime Minister requires that she announce how the remaining fish farms will transition out of BC waters. If she orders the fish farms to leave, that will be the end of ocean fish farming in BC. If she allows them to stay, or allows some of them to stay, it will crush the people who've been fighting the farms for 30 years. Next time on The Salmon People. I think what they're doing is they're trying to give the impression that all isolated communities of First Nations on the coast support this industry. And how dare you ignore their expression of what they want in their territory. It's simply not true. Twice as many farms have been closed by isolated communities. And so I think that's why the industry focuses on jobs, jobs, jobs. And, you know, like, oh my God, all the lights are going to go out on coastal British Columbia. It's just not true. The Salmon People is researched, written, and produced by me, Sandra Bartlett. It's a co-production with Canada's National Observer. Story editing by My Frozen Headphones Production. Special thanks to the document readers. And once again, help other people find us by going to the Apple Podcast site and giving us a five-star rating. And hey, maybe even leave a comment. Thanks for listening.